Good morning. How are y'all? Good. Um, as Carol said, my name is Fred. I am the lead pastor here, and I'm glad that you're here with us today. As we as we go through Song of Solomon, um, we have seen we have seen this couple in Song of Solomon uh, fall in love. We have seen them married. We have seen the honeymoon. And guess what comes after the honeymoon? Conflict. Right? They're going to get in a fight, and we're going to see it. Now, some of you are like, I have no idea what that means. You're lying, all right? All right, so before we get started, though, what I want to do is I want to let you in on a little counselor secret. I, I, was, I have my master's in counseling. I'm a trained counselor. Uh, counseling is part of the ministry that I do here. Uh, but I want to let you in on a, a secret that we counselors do, and it's how we set up our office. In most counselors' offices, you will see a couch and you will see two chairs, right? And I'm going to tell you why that is. A counselor, when they open their door, they will let you, if you're a couple, they will let you and your spouse uh, pick where you want to sit. It makes a big difference where you sit, right? Because if you sit on the couch, we know as the counselor, there's some unity between the two of y'all. If you sit in the chairs, it means that y'all are separated, and about something, and the top job of the counselors to figure out what that is. That configuration is not set up there for family sessions. It's set up so that we, as the counselor, can have a clue about what we're walking into before a word is ever said. And, and I tell you what's hilarious is premarital counselor, I mean, when I'm doing premarital counseling, guess where the couple always sits for premarital counseling? On the couch, next to each other, hugging each other. One time, I was in a different office, and um, I didn't have a couch. And so this premarital couple literally took the two chairs and rearranged the furniture and pushed them together so that they could sit together. That's the beauty of premarital. It's all rainbows and unicorns when you're doing that, right? But a married couple, when they walk in, I actually have very few married couples that will sit in the chairs. What most married couples will do is, if they're in conflict um, is that they will sit on the couch, and I have a pillow on the couch too, and they'll move that pillow in between them. So it shows that there's a little bit of conflict there, or maybe a lot of conflict there, but there is a separation. And why does that always happen? Here's why this always happens. is because conflict is an ever-present partner in marriage. Really, conflict is an ever-present partner in any relationship you have. I would dare say, if, if you have a relationship with someone and you haven't had conflict, you don't have a real relationship with them. It is just fake, and it is shallow, uh, because as a relationship goes deeper, whether it's friends, whether it's dating, or whether it's marriage, there is conflict that's always present. In our, in our journey through Song of Solomon, the first three chapters of this book were dedicated to how this, this couple met and fell in love. The rest of the book, with the, very, with the exception of the very last chapter, is given to two topics. Sex and conflict is what the rest of this book is about. Why? Because conflict is this ever-present partner in marriage. We will go from the honeymoon last week to the reality of life this week. From the, the bliss of sweet union, which is what the honeymoon was, to now we get to see what does work look like to stay unified, right? Because that's what we're going to see them do. And what we're going to see 
And this is, this is what I hope we walk away with. We're going we're gonna to talk about what happens in our souls and in our hearts when conflict happens. But what I hope we walk away with is that no matter who you're in conflict with, that conflict is a reason to sit on the couch, not in the chairs. That conflict, and this is, this is what may blow all of our minds, that conflict is actually a reason to connect, not a reason to separate. Conflict is a reason to connect, not a reason to separate. Now, we're going to be in, in Song of Solomon. We're going to cover a big chunk of it today. We're going to do uh, chapter 5, verse 2, all the way through, six to, through chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. It's on page 457 in that Bible. Um, or uh, you can download the Bible app, and we're there. Um, and just so you know, too, on that Bible app, part of my message today is going to be 10 do's and don'ts in conflict. Those do's and don'ts are, are written on that app. And so if you go to, to the Bible app, go to events, and go to Fellowship Asheville, those do's and don'ts are there. You can screenshot it and save it, right? Um, um, well, let's, 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 let's dive in, because here's what we're going to see. Because what we've seen in this book, and this is what the beauty of this book is, is that we've seen this couple uh, base their, their dating relationship on character and identity. Uh, we've seen them go through the, the work of, of dating and how that work was based on the work of Christ. And what we've seen this couple do is they've engaged uh, with each other. Is we've, seen, we've seen how everything that they've done is based on the work of the gospel. It's seen in the gospel. And we're going to see the gospel even in conflict and how to do it. And, and what I hope that we walk away with today is not only that, that conflict is a reason to connect, but, but, but here's how conflict moves to resolution. That conflict, like I said, no matter if it's conflict with your spouse or with a friend or, or with someone that you're dating, conflict reveals the heart, right? Conflict shows you what's going on with you. But resolution, to be able to move forward, requires a changed heart. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see hearts exposed and we're going to see hearts changed. We're going to see conflict, and we're going to see resolution. Well, let's look at uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2 says this, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So, so, so here's, here's what's going on. Right? In those days, uh, in ancient times, husbands and wives slept in different rooms, um, uh, particularly, too, because he was a king. Um, they, they had different rooms. I mean, if you go through the Biltmore Estate, you see that, right? You see he has a room and she has a room, and, and it was common even back then. And, and uh, that's what's happening. And so he's showing up at her room because he wants to have sex with her. And she knows that it's him. It's, you know, she, she, she says that my heart is still awake. And he knocks at the door wanting to be with her. Let's look at what happens. Because here's, here's, here's her response in verse 3. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Right? So, so here's what's happening. He comes. He knocks at the door. But the honeymoon is over, y'all. He comes and he knocks at the door, and oftentimes people lived with dirt floors since most of the architecture was open. You remember how we talked about that last week, that, that the rooms were, were, were open rooms so that the wind could go through and so they could stay cool. And so, so because of that, there was just a lot of dust and a lot of dirt on the floor. And she had already had her bath, her feet were clean, and she didn't want to get up 
and come and unlock the door and let him in. She didn't want to get dirt on her feet. In other words, in modern times, he comes knocking on the door and she says, honey, not tonight. I got a headache, right? That's what she's saying. Now, y'all, it doesn't get any more real than this, right? The honeymoon was five verses before this. And now we see she has a headache. One person in the relationship wants something that the other doesn't. Y'all, this is the core of conflict because conflict at its core is this. Conflict is when one person is opposed to another. And it could be about anything. It can be about money. It can be about child discipline. It can be about how to manage the house. It can be about fashion. It can be about sex. It can be about anything. And conflict affects us all and conflict affects us all the time. Look at how, look at how this guy reacts to this conflict. He wants something she doesn't. It's a conflict. Look at verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Now notice, he doesn't force his way in. Like I said, the, the architecture was, was open, and so the door was open, and, and, and what she sees is that he reaches his hand through the door and touches the latch. Right? And, and from where she's sitting, she, we're going to see what he does when he touches the latch. But, but this was this ornate door, and he passed it through, and, and he touches the latch. Now, he could very easily unlatch it and go in. Right? He was her king, and he could have claimed rights. He could have claimed law, and he could have gone in. But look at what he does in verse 5. He says, I rose to open to my beloved, so he didn't open the door, and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. And so what he did is when she said, not tonight, I got a headache, he reached in and he put his cologne on the door. Remember, every time that we have seen this couple engage, what's the thing that's always talked about with him and even with her is their smell. Right? Like anytime she's around him, he has this smell, he has this, this cologne, he has this scent about him, and it always reminds her of his character. And so instead of forcing his way in, he sticks his hand in and he just puts a few drops of his cologne on the door. And so instead of law, instead of, instead of forcing his way in, instead of claiming his rights, he instead is using tenderness and is using grace and just putting his cologne on the door because this man understood something, that he understood conflict is not about wants and needs, right? Conflict is not about what I want, what I need, what you want, what you need, that conflict is always about the heart, right? And in conflict, get this, the best way to resolution is a revolution of the heart. It has to have heart change. Because you see, in, in a situation of conflict, when you're in a disagreement with someone, with your spouse or with a friend or, or, or a coworker or even with a boss, how you respond to that conflict shows 
where your heart truly is. It shows where your heart lies. How you respond to disagreement shows if you're willing to sit on the couch or if you're going to sit in the chairs in a counseling office. And so let me ask you a question that may help kind of unpack what happens in your heart in the midst of conflict. And y'all, this question convicts me because I've, I've made this mistake many times. Here's, here's the question. In the midst of conflict, who is your standard of, of, of conduct? In the midst of conflict, who is your standard of conduct? Let me, let, me, let me unpack that for a minute. Because if it is your spouse or if it is the person that you're in conflict with, guess what? That's not going to go anywhere. That's where you get these, these arguments that spring up of, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, well, you said this, and, and I said this, and you said this, and I said this, and it always just kind of blows up. If the standard of conflict, if the standard of your conduct is the person that you're in conflict with, Because then you're just going at each other like this. However, if the standard of conduct for your conflict is someone else, you react and respond differently. You see, if the the standard of conduct is just the person that you're in conflict with, what you're going to do every single time is you're just going to react to what they say. But what if, what if your standard of conduct in conflict was the gospel? What if your standard of conduct in conflict was Jesus? You see, if Jesus is your standard of conduct, then you choose to respond. I had a counselor tell me one time when uh, I was in the midst of conflict with someone that whenever we got together to picture, to visualize Jesus being in the room with us, and he said, hint, hint, because he is right? And if Jesus is in the room with you, does that change how you respond to the conflict? And it does. It moves me from reacting to what they say, to what I'm saying, to what's going on in my heart, to actually responding in a completely different way, to respond with grace and tenderness. That's what this guy did. He didn't react to her. He responded to her with grace and tenderness. And so a question for you in in conflict, do you react to the situation like the situation or do you respond to the the Strike that, let's go back. Do you respond to the situation like Jesus? Because you see, when you respond, when you respond, let Jesus be your standard. And that's what allows you to respond. When you take what you've experienced with Jesus, the grace and mercy and tenderness that you've experienced with Jesus, and you mimic that in another relationship, if you can take that love and and all of that and mimic it, and, and the patience shown you and the tenderness, and you apply it to that person, then you can respond with the standard of Jesus and not react to the situation. Well, well, how does this work for him? Let's look at verse six. She says, I opened. Um, let's see, I roused and opened to my beloved, my fingers dripped from the myrrh. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. All right, so she's gone from being close to him to, to, to you know, being shut off to, to now being open to him. And so there's this change of heart. And so now she's not only open to him, she's going to go looking for this guy. And verse 6 says, My soul felled me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so now she leaves her room to look for him. Now, this is important. Um, We're going to see this, I think it's next week. It might be the week after. 
Um, later, she's described by him with sandals on her feet. And what that means is that she's not a servant. Servants often in this time didn't have shoes on because uh, in many ways it forced them to stay in the house where they were serving because you wouldn't want to go out into the street and go out into the city without at least sandals on because uh, of the roughness of the street and the filth that was there and all of that stuff. And so, so servants oftentimes uh, were barefooted. She, right now, doesn't have sandals on. She's, she, she has bare feet because she just got out of bed and she's going to look for them. This is important here as we go into this next passage. Look at verse 7. It says, The watchman found me. And so there's people around the city that are keeping it safe. They found me as they went about the city and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Now remember, this is poetry, right? And it's supposed to make you feel something. And probably what you feel right now as you read that this woman opened the door and she's looking for her lover, she's looking for her husband, and she goes out and she gets beaten and bruised by the watchman. Probably what you feel right now is this sense of injustice. That's not supposed to happen, and you're right. It's not supposed to happen. These watchmen saw her and saw that, that she was barefooted and, and, and might have thought that she was a servant. They might not have recognized her as the, as the wife of the king. But, but the point here is that she is where she was never supposed to be. This is what conflict does. When conflict isn't handled rightly, it puts you where you're not supposed to be. And that's what happens to her. She's not supposed to be outside of the palace or house or wherever it was that she was. When we get conflict right, we find ourselves in places that we were never supposed to be. Well, now the choir is going to chime in. And we're going to see, remember, God oftentimes in this book speaks to the choir. Look at verse 9. It says, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful woman? What is your beloved more than another beloved? That you thus adjure us. In other words, they're saying, what's so special about your man? They're checking to see, where, where is your heart in this? Because how does she see this man that she's going after? Proverbs 16, 2 says, All of a man's ways seem innocent to him, but the Lord weighs the motives of the heart. You see, they're checking her motives. They're, they're, they're looking to see if there's a heart change. They're looking to see, does she want to sit on the couch or does she want to sit in the chairs? And y'all, this is the hard work of conflict, is dealing with the heart. It's interesting, when our kids were little, we had this phrase that we would say uh, when we would ask them to do something and they wouldn't do it. You know, there was that long pause as you're waiting and you're trying to discern, like, did they hear me? Okay, certainly they heard me because they're three feet away from me. Um, are they occupied with something else? No. And so we would have this phrase. We'd say, obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Right? And that's what we would say. And one time one of them looked at, at us and they said, I, I get the right away and all the way, but the happy heart's really hard. Right? One of them even said, I'm going to obey, but not with a happy heart one time. <laughs> like, that's what conflict does, is it reveals the heart. You see, conflict always reveals the heart. It's what it does. And to deal with conflict, you have to deal with the heart. Look, look what was in her heart in verse 10. She says, My beloved is radiant and, and, and rude and ruddy, uh, distinguished among 10,000. 
So he's saying that, that this guy that I'm going after, he is unique. And he is pure. Look at verse 11. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Oftentimes in Scripture, gold is associated with wisdom. In Proverbs 16, 16 it is. And so she's saying that he is wise. In verse 12, his eyes are like the doves, are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. So in other words, when she looks at his eyes, they're clear. They're not, they're not red with addiction. He's sober. And he's clean, and, and there's no type of addiction in him. Verse 13, his cheeks are like the beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. When she thinks of him, she thinks of everything that's sweet. Right? He is kind to her. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, be decked with sapphires. I wonder if he had freckles. Like I read that and she's talking about his body is polished ivory so it's white but then it's, 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 it's bedecked or bedazzled would probably be a good translation with sapphires. Like I, I, just, I just wonder if he has freckles. But anyway, his legs are alabaster columns set on bases, on, on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Now what's interesting here is, is all these things are pictures of strength but they're also references to the, to the temple because the temple used cedars from Lebanon. The temple had these, these columns of, of alabaster. And so not only is she saying that he is strong, but she's saying that he reminds her of worship, that he has this, this godly spiritual strength to him that she admires. Look at verse 16. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And so in all of this, to this choir, she says that he is her friend. You see, there's this great companionship between them. And now remember, conflict doesn't just reveal the heart. Her heart is with him. But resolution requires a changed heart. Because when we first started reading, her heart wasn't with him. And now we see that her heart has changed. Where, where she used to see a bother... When he came knocking on the door, now she sees her husband as God sees him. And in conflict, you know that your heart has changed when you can see the person that you're in conflict with the way God sees them. When you can see them, when you can see them without condemnation, that you can see them with the, the beauty of God in them. And so a question for you is, is who are you in conflict right now, right? Like, like as I'm up here talking, who are you thinking about? Who's the person that you're thinking, surely Fred's not talking about that person in my life? Yeah, that's the one, right? Like, who are you in conflict with? You see, to help you create space for heart change, and, and y'all, I'm telling you, this is about you, not the person you're in conflict with. Right? In re-engage, we have this phrase, stay in your own circle. Right? I'm talking about you right now, not them. Stay in your own circle. I was reminded this week of, of something, too, that's in the, the, the um, addiction recovery uh, system. And they say, stay on your own side of the street, right? Like, stay on your own side of the street in this. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Who are you in conflict right now? To help you create space for heart change, I challenge you, before you speak to them, to pray for them. And don't pray for them to change, right? Pray to see them the way that God sees them. 
Pray for your heart to change. Because seriously, when you can see the person you're in conflict the way that God sees them, and here's the beauty of our gospel. If you are in Jesus, if they have said yes to Jesus, the scriptures are very clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. I don't understand it, but that's what the scripture says. And when you can see them without condemnation, you can see them the way that God sees them. When you can see them without condemnation, you can see them with grace and with mercy and with compassion. Now, you may still see sin in their life, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But how you see them with grace and mercy and compassion affects how you deal with them, how you talk to them, how you love them. Because her heart has changed. Look at, ver- look at chapter 6, verse 1. Where and, and this is what's great. This is the choir speaking now. And look how they've changed because her heart has changed. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So now, not only has her heart changed and is seeking resolution, now the choir has gone from saying, listen, who, who is this guy you're looking for? What do you really think about him? To now they're saying, all right, listen, we're going to do everything we can to help you find him. We're going to work together with you to seek resolution. And so they find each other. Verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Now, how did they show their resolution in this conflict? If you remember, do you remember from last week what his garden means? Right, They had sex is what happened. They, they just had makeup sex right here in verse 2 and 3. Right? They are, they are resolved and they are back together again. But notice in verse 3, this is more than about sex. There really has been a heart change. She says in verse 3, listen to this, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Now this may be semantics, but I think it's important because in chapter 2, in chapter 2, she said something different. Here she says, I am my beloved's. But in chapter 2, she said, my beloved is mine. But here she says, I am his. And so there's been this shift in her mind that, that we belong together. I don't just belong to him. He belongs to me. We are together in this. Her heart is now toward this man, and it's not toward herself. And can I tell you what this teaches us? It teaches us that conflict is a reason for connection, not separation. Conflict is a reason to connect, not to separate. The person you're in conflict with, God has something for both of y'all in that conflict, if both of you are willing to go there. You see, conflict is always a reason to sit on the couch with no pillow between you because conflict done rightly is a catalyst for life change. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, for those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, and, and, and as I've been talking about this, you've been thinking of Matthew 18, right? Which is how to deal with a person that is uh, caught in sin, that you go to them. Jesus talked about this. He said, listen, if somebody is in sin, you go to them and you point out their sin, 
And if they don't confess and repent of sin, then you bring somebody else with you and you address it again. And, and if that doesn't work, then you bring a group of people with you, take it to the elders. And if that doesn't do it again, and if they still don't confess and they still don't repent, then it says that you uh, basically... Uh, kick them out of the church and treat them as a sinner and tax collector. And the problem is people think that this is how you separate the church from sin. I've got a question for you. I don't think that's what Matthew 18 is about. I think Matthew 18 is about how do you stay connected to an unrepentant sinner. Because the way you treat a tax collector isn't separation. You treat them with the love and tenderness of the gospel because you want to woo them to Jesus. You don't separate, you stay connected, but you stay connected differently. That's what Matthew 18 is about. It's about how do you stay connected to someone who doesn't want to change in conflict. You see, conflict is a reason to connect. And you stay with people that you're in conflict with, you stay connected with them for the purpose of life change. If conflict is two people that are opposed... For resolution to happen, there has to be a changed heart. And the only heart you can change is, guess whose? Yours. That's the only one you're responsible for. Well, look what this kind of conflict in resolution, look what it produces in verse 4. In verse 4, this is, this is Solomon speaking. He says, you are beautiful as uh, Terzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes that come up from the washing. All of them bear their twins, so she's still got her teeth. All right. Not one of them among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? His words of this resolution, his words to this woman are exalting. That in the midst of this conflict, he saw nothing but love for her. In verse 4, the cities that he mentioned are cities of power and beauty. And she says she is like them. And in verses 5 through 7, some of that language might have looked familiar to you if you were here last week. It's the same words, the very similar words that he said during the honeymoon. And, and to her, she is just as beautiful as the day that he saw her, as the honeymoon. In verse 9, he is the only, she is the only one for him. She is unique. Now, what I want to do is give you 10 do's and don'ts real quick about, about when you're in the midst of conflict, how do you seek resolution? What creates an environment for heart change? Before I do that, though, I, 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 listen, these do's and don'ts can't be manufactured. When I said well, Jesus is your standard, I really mean that. Like, like the gospel that we believe, the Jesus that you have said yes to, it has to come from that place of heart change, these do's and don'ts. Because when you've experienced the truth of, of Jesus, when you've experienced the, 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 the grace and mercy that he gives you, you give that out to other people. You give that out to people that you're in conflict with. And the only way to have a changed heart is to let Jesus into that heart to change it. 
And if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, then let Jesus into your heart to do the work that only he can do. Because if your life isn't marked by grace and mercy and love and tenderness, let Jesus in and do the work. For those of you who have said yes to Jesus, here's what's crazy about our faith. We can still close our hearts off to him. And we can still not let him do the work he has to do. To those of you who have said yes to Jesus, invite Jesus in to do the work that he can do. He's already saved you. Let him sanctify you. And if you haven't said yes, like I said, accept the gift of salvation that he bought for you by dying on the cross. And let that be the first heart change that you experience. Well, let's look at these 10 ways and understand that they are ways when you've invited Jesus in your heart. The first one is this. Speak with tenderness, right? In the midst of conflict, speak with tenderness. Now, here's the deal with me. I can be very quick with my words, meaning like, like I can think fast. And, and there's some of these, I'll, I'll get to them in a minute. There's some of these that kind of trigger me, like when somebody uses always and never or every time. I'm immediately going to prove you wrong, right? Because no one does always and never. And I will work on getting victorious than resolving the conflict. And that's not good for anybody. By the way, that's another point we'll get to in just a minute too. But speak with tenderness. In James, it says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Do that. Don't speak rashly. Don't raise your voice. Proverbs 15.1 says, uh, um, a harsh word, um, no, no, a soft answer turns away wrath, uh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Use soft words, soft answers. So in the midst of conflict, do speak in private, not in public. Have you ever seen a couple argue in public? Oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing, isn't it? I always think John Quinones is going to come out of, of like, what would you do? You know, like that TV show where he sets up these horrible scenarios. And, and I'm always thinking, am I a bystander in this? Am I supposed to step in? Because this is so embarrassing. He hasn't shown up yet. But don't be that couple that argues in public. Even in front of the kids. Like, like conflict is best done behind closed doors. Because here's what happens when kids see parents fight wrongly, when they, see, when they see parents fight in conflict in uncontrolled ways. And I'm not saying don't ever let them see you conflict, let them see you conflict well. But if you're doing it wrongly, it, it teaches them bad habits, right? It teaches your kids how to do it wrongly. And kids get scared because you're supposed to be their safe place. And when they see you out of control, they feel out of control. And dads in particular, not to put extra pressure on you, but guess what there is? A lot of times the way your kids see God is the way they see you. And if you have out-of-control anger, guess what they think God has? Out-of-control anger. Like I literally was living with four guys one time, and we were going through a book on conflict called Caring Enough to Confront. And um, I asked them, I said, I said, how do you see God reacts to your sin. Like if you sin, what's God's natural response? And for some of them, it was distance and separation. For some of them, it was anger. For some of them, uh, well, that was kind of the main one, separation and anger. And I said, okay, when you were in an argument with your dad, 
you're in conflict with your dad. How did he respond? And one by one, it was the exact same response. That the way their dad responded to them in conflict was the way they assumed God treated them in conflict. And so we got to talk about how does God really deal with us in conflict when we sin. And it's in grace and mercy and tenderness and forgiveness. And also, too, like if you do conflict badly in front of your kids, ask their forgiveness for doing it wrongly. Let me tell you what that does. That is so powerful for kids when you come to them and you apologize and don't just say, I'm sorry for doing it, but saying, listen, mommy and daddy sinned in front of you. And we did something that, that, that is against what God would want us to do. Will you forgive us? And it puts the power of that in the kids' hands. And for them to say, yes, I forgive you. I've never had one of my kids not forgive me, ever. And not only not forgive me, they've never not forgiven me in like one second. Of course, Daddy, I forgive you. That is powerful. And also, too, don't use the kids don't say, son, don't you think daddy's being stupid right now? Like, it's happened, and kids don't need that. Don't, nev- don't use never and always. I've already talked about that one. There's only one person who's never and always something, and that's God. And nobody in here is God last time I checked, so let's just scratch that one. All right, don't resort to name-calling. Sticks and stones, you know that saying, sticks and stones will never hurt me? No, no, how's it go? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. All right, because here's the deal. You get hit with a stick or you get hit with a stone, you will get bruised or at worst a broken bone. Those heal. All of us in this room are carrying words that have hurt us, and some of us will carry those words to our grave. That hurt will still be there. Words can do damage that can't be healed. I mean, ultimately, it will be healed. But man, it causes a lot of conflict. Stay present. Number five, do stay present. Leave the past in the past. Some people, when they argue, get hysterical. The, 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 the hardest to argue with are the people that get historical. Right? And they start naming dates and times that you did stuff. And, and, and they're pretty hard to, to argue with because they're Right? Right? But stay present. Let the conflict be what the conflict is. And also stay present. Don't stop out and leave. If you need to take a break because your emotions are too high, take a break and come back. Uh, but, but stay present. Sit on the couch. Seek resolution, not victory. Right? That's the one I talked about a little ago. Some, if you say never and always, I'm going to win because I'm going to prove you wrong. Right? That's bad. That's bad. It's not about victory. It's not about winning. It's about resolution. So don't win with logic or out arguing because if you win, guess what you've done? You've lost. Do build up. Don't tear down. Don't be condescending. That's a way to use power to to put somebody down. Um, Don't demean because that's a way to use power to tear somebody down. So you want to build them up. You don't want to tear them down. That's That's what we've seen our guy do. Use the term I, not you. I feel sad when this happens. I feel like you don't trust me when I have to show you the receipts from the grocery store. Like, that's using I language, not you language. Use good timing. 
Don't get into a conflict with somebody is tired, sick, hungry, drunk, or high. And I add that because this is Asheville. Right? Like those aren't good times to get into a conflict. And then do touch with care. Right? Touch with care. Don't grab, slap, push, poke, throw, drag. I use all those because I've counseled couples in my 20-something years of counseling that have done one or more of those. Don't do it. Touch with care. Because what these simple do's and don'ts do is they show the person that you're in conflict with that you have experienced a grace that's greater than the conflict you're in. That's powerful. When you do these, you take the conflict closer to resolution. Well, let's go back to Song of Solomon, uh, verse 11, and let's see, um, let, let's see uh, his words. We just saw his words. Let's look at hers, and we'll be done here in just a minute. She says, I went, down to the, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince, and so this is forgiveness. What, what happens, what it means is that he's put her back on the couch, literally. You know, remember I said they would carry each other on these, on these couches and people would carry him. And, and, and he put her right next to him. She went to him and he placed her on the chariot with him. It's a sign of confidence restored. When, when there is reconciliation, there is trust. They're together again. But not only together, there is a deepening of the relationship. Look at this. I love this. Um, verse 13 Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as, does, uh, as upon a dance before two armies? The important thing with this passage is that we now see her nickname. Shulamite is her nickname. It's the name that, that he called her. When you say it in Hebrew, his name was Solomon and Shulamite. They're very close together, right? And so he, he, they, her nickname is, is sounds like his name. It'd be like me calling Stacy for debt or Frida or something like that. I know, isn't that awful? But, <laughs> but that would be it. Or if you've watched The Mandalorian, it's Yoda and Yaddle, and we see what happens when they get together. Nobody? Y'all. All right, fine. All right. Same thing, though. Nickname. This process brought them closer. I, I, I guarantee you in second service, there'll be people that know what I'm talking about. All right? All right. All right. We'll see. But this conflict brought them closer together. He has a nickname for her, and it is a nickname of tenderness and, and sweetness. They have this tighter bond. Y'all, their conflict was a reason to connect. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounded, guess what abounds even more? Grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounded much more, all the more. So we're going to stop right here and we'll pick up next week in chapter 6. But, but here's what I want you to do. This week, when you are in conflict, not if, when you are in conflict, I want you to sit on the couch with that person somewhere. Like literally, find a couch and sit down and talk. Right? Because conflict is a reason to connect, not to separate. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you are a good God, and we certainly don't deserve you. We don't deserve the mercy shown us. We don't deserve the tenderness shown us. We don't deserve the patience and love shown us. But yet, while we were sinners, you died for us. And you drew us to yourself. You wooed us and, 
and you showed us compassion and you showed us mercy and you put your cologne on the latch when, when we said no and we came looking for you and found you and maybe we got beat up along the way some but Lord we found you and so Father thank you thank you for all that you did to make that possible and God I pray that we don't forget that as a church we don't forget that as a people. And we take what you have given us and we give it to others. We sit on the couch with those that we're in conflict with. We invite this you to change our hearts so that we can do that. And Father, may we be a different people because of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.